that it's going to take a little while for her to, to get there, but God, we pray that you would be so faithful and that you would allow this to work in your perfect timing and glory. God, will you receive all honor and glory and praise in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Excited. Um, Michaela will be here for a little while. She's headed back to Texas, so if you want to t- grab her and talk to her about her whole heartbeat, Carson and Katie and I had the privilege of sitting down a few weeks ago and just listening to her talk about the things that are happening on those campuses in the heart of, of New York City is just super exciting. And so uh, we are, are very excited for um, what's kind of ahead for her. Um, as I mentioned when we started, we are actually sewing up the book of Acts today. And uh, it's been a crazy journey. September 7th, 2014, I preached or I spoke the first message that we had almost two years ago to the week. And I thought about stretching it out, but then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So we are, are one week away from, you know, finishing that thing in the sort of an accidental perfect two years. Uh, 28 chapters, 1,007 verses, and about 25,000 words. We have covered every one of them. I went back and looked. It's taken us 67 individual messages. I have written 536 pages and 357,000 words over two years, uh, writing messages and preparing for this journey. It has been an incredible investment. Um, and one that, and I've preached through a lot of books, but this is the longest. Somebody said I should just go ahead and start the Psalms, which is like 150 chapters or whatever. We'll get through here in 2040. Uh, Jesus will come back before we're done. And, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up and then figure out where we're going from there. But it's been an incredible investment because if you think about what we've seen, right, we, over 35 years, the most incredible picture of church history. We've seen the ascension of Christ. We've seen the birth of the church, the the giving of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the church being sent into the world. We've seen the gospel given and taken to the Gentiles through Peter and Paul. We've seen these incredible missionary journeys. We've seen the growth and explosion and the demonstration of community, of what the church really is. We've watched hardships. We've stood in prison with Peter. We've stood in prison with Paul. We've watched people that we loved, we came to love, like, you know, Stephen that were stoned to death. We've watched incredible stories. We've seen Paul in the past five years go from imprisonment to trial to near execution to shipwrecks and storms and snake bites, all to wind up back here in Rome. 35 years of church history wrapped up in those 28 chapters. And it's been remarkable. And it's better than just a story. And I've said this every single week. It's because this book is what you and I are called into. We are called into this. It is the sending of the church, and it is our very call as a church and as followers of Christ. This book, if any book in the New Testament or Old Testament, is marked as the the sort of call of the church, it's the book of Acts. And what we've seen in it has been an individual and a corporate kind of movement to take the gospel into the world. That the church cannot exist for the maintenance of itself. That if we exist to gather here and pat each other on the back and make each other feel good and create systems for each other, we've somehow missed the entire call of what it means to follow Jesus. At some point in time, this thing has to get launched into the world and the cracks and crevices of culture and take the gospel to people. It's the entire story of the book of Acts, the sending of the church, the empowering by the Holy Spirit and the sending of the church, which you are a part of, into the world. Not just the Michaela's of the world, but the sending of the church, which you and I are a part of. It's been a, been a great journey. 
Um, if you haven't been here, you can get online and listen to the huge recap I gave a few weeks ago. I'm not going to do a big historical recap, but Paul has landed in Rome. And this is an important thing because for the past five years of his life, he has been waiting to get here. Okay, so those of you that remember, remember that Paul ended up in Jerusalem against the well-wishing of his friends. They knew what was waiting for them there, but Paul believed that the Holy Spirit was telling him to return from the third missionary journey and go to Jerusalem. And there was hostility waiting for them, anger and hatred and violence. And he got there, and, and what he faced was imprisonment and near death and beatings and murder plots. And he was kind of scurried out of town in the middle of the night, and he faced three different trials in front of three different rulers. And he was found innocent at every turn, right, but still kept in prison for multiple years. Appealed to go have his case heard before Caesar, Emperor Nero at the time, who was the most brutal emperor that Rome will ever know, right? And we're going to kind of see that a little bit today, actually. Sails for Rome, takes way too long. Ship gets blown off course. Storms come. They throw everything over. Ship breaks apart. They shipwreck. He's bit by a snake. Three months later, he kind of makes his way up the coast to Rome. And what would be three years after Jesus told him he would go? And that call came on that night in the army barracks in Jerusalem after Paul had faced near death being torn apart by the Sanhedrin who wanted him dead. Jesus stood next to him in the middle of the night and in the middle of the book of Acts and he just says, you're going to have to testify about me in Rome just as you've done in Jerusalem, so take courage. And that call would mark the rest of the book. And it took three years for Paul to get from there to Rome. And what we saw the past few weeks is Paul has set foot in Rome. And Luke is going to end the book with what happens. And it's extremely anticlimactic. Uh, for all that we have been through, it just fades to black. And so we're going to explore some of the intricacies today. But that's how we got here and that's where we've been. So before we open that up to Acts chapter 28, verses, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, 15, 16, uh, let's go before the Lord and let's just pray. And let's ask him to just teach our hearts this morning. So let's pray together. God, you are uh, incredible. You are so faithful. You are so gracious. You are so good. God, that you are faithful in shipwrecks. You are faithful in storms. You are faithful in the most dark of nights. God, you are faithful in the beautiful things, and you are faithful in the greatest triumphs. God, your presence never leaves us. If anything we've seen in Acts, God, is that you are always and forever at work for your glory. Even when things don't make sense, even when things don't line up, you are always and forever at work for your glory. So God, we ask as we wrap this story up, as we wrap these encounters up, that you will... Show us the beauty and the completeness of your word and that you would teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask God to teach your heart this morning. Whatever you need to hear, whatever he needs to speak to you, just ask God to speak it to you. Give him just sort of free reign to speak to your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know them, we do this every single week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them, teach their hearts, encourage or convict. Whatever it is that the Lord is going to do, pray that he would do it for someone beside you.
Lord, we ask that as we bring this study to a close, you would show us your faithfulness. Show us how you're moving even in our own lives and how we can trust you and find joy in you always. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. So Acts 28, 17, Paul has arrived in Rome, all right? He has walked 75 miles shoulder to shoulder with a few believers that met him in the port. When their boat landed, some believers came from two cities, actually, one that was 33 miles away, one that was 43 miles away, and they joined Paul, and his heart was incredibly encouraged, and he stayed with believers there for a week, and then they walked together under arrest with Roman centurions 75 miles from the port into the city of Rome, where Paul learned that he was going to be able to stay under house arrest, under surveillance 24 hours a day, but in a place that he could pay for until it was time for him to stand before Caesar, before emperor. And that's where we left off last week. So verse 17 says this, These day, Three days later, he would call together the leaders of the Jews. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against me, uh, bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk to you. It is because the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And they replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of the brothers who have come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear your views, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. And they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where they were staying, where he was staying. And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he had said, and others would not believe, and they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said that through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they may, may, might have seen with their eyes and heard with their ears and understood with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And for two years, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul lands in Rome and he's under house arrest. What this means is that most likely he was chained to a Roman guard. Right? In fact, you get a little bit of an allusion to that in, uh, in verse 20 where he says, For this reason I've asked, you to talk, I've asked to talk with you because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. So he was bound to a Roman guard 24 hours a day because he was facing a death penalty. And they had graciously given him the ability to rent his own place, but he was going to be bound to a centurion by a chain. So he's under house arrest in Rome. He's waiting for his trial. No one knows how long that's going to take, but everybody knows it'll be before Nero. Well, three days go by. 
Paul resting up from that journey, most likely a 75-mile walk, a three-month boat ride. And he decides that he's going to call for the leaders of the Jews, which is often what Paul did. If you remember back to the missionary journeys, right? Every time Paul would land in a city, what would he do? He would either go to the synagogue or he'd go to the place where the Jewish people gathered and he would get all the leaders together and he would share the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would riot and try and kill him. That's a pretty much the story of the missionary journeys. Some would believe, some wouldn't. They would fight, they'd try and kill Paul and he'd escape out of town. Right, 75% of our missionary journeys are marked by that story. Well, Paul does what he knows, which is he sends for the Jewish leaders. Now, remember, Luke and Aristarchus and the other believers there are free. So Paul probably uses them and says, hey, go get the Jewish leaders and bring them to the house. And they do that. They bring the Jewish leaders to the house. And Paul, wanting to quelch any rumors about why he's there, says, hey, I summoned for you so that I could tell you that I am on trial, not for doing anything wrong, but because I have believed in the hope of Israel, which is Jesus Christ. That's why I'm on trial. I'm not bringing any charges against you. I'm not going to Caesar to try and pin anything on the Jewish people. I just want you to know. And, and it kind of in a, in a miraculous way, they say, we haven't even heard about you, man. Nobody sent letters. The brothers that have come up here have not told us anything bad about you, which was miraculous because word traveled so fast. And Paul had faced trial in front of Felix and Festus and uh, Agrippa. Remember all those trials? I mean, the word hadn't gotten up to Rome yet. The brothers say, we haven't heard anything. But I'll tell you this, we want to hear what you have to say because the whole world is talking against this sect. And that sect they're talking about is this movement of Christians that has now been labeled as the way. The whole world is talking against these followers of Christ, the way, this sect, and we want to know what you have to say. And so they arranged for a day, a time, when the Jewish people would bring their leaders and other important people they wanted to hear, and they would come over to Paul's house, and they would just sit and talk. So they show up on whatever day that was, and they bring all the important people, and they bring anybody else that wants to hear. It was a large crowd, and they gathered probably outside of this house that Paul was renting, who was now chained to a Roman guard. And from morning till night, right, morning till night, Paul explains and shares the gospel of Jesus Christ beginning with the law and the prophets. So he starts with what the Jewish people would identify with, the law and the prophets, And he explains the redemptive and incredible nature and picture of God to the person of Jesus Christ. All day long. All day long. And they probably dialogued and asked questions and and they just engaged in this. And they get to the end of the day and it says that some were believing. Some were, were hearing this and they were accepting this message and others weren't, which is pretty typical. And they began to argue amongst each other. They began to kind of fight about it, right? And Paul says to them, and he sort of throws a little gasoline on the spire when he says, listen, I knew this would happen. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, God tells Isaiah the people would have calloused hearts and they would not accept this message. Their hearts would be hard, their ears wouldn't hear, and they would not understand. Therefore, right, the gospel is going to the Gentiles because they will hear it and they will receive it. Well, Acts 28, 29, which your Bible probably doesn't have because it wasn't recorded in the early manuscript, says, left arguing vigorously. So it's not in the earliest manuscripts. Your Bible probably doesn't have it, but you get the sense that they left in this sort of argument. They were divided. And they just sort of go. And we don't actually hear from any of them again. And then it ends just like this. They leave, Paul drops that bomb, and then it says... 
For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, the book of Acts fades to black. There is no resolution. There is no trial. There is no victory. There is no conviction. 28 chapters leading up to this moment in Rome, and it just seems to go on. For two years, Paul sits in this house, and he just welcomes anybody that wants to come by, and he tells them about Jesus. In the book of Acts, it began with the ascension of Christ and the promise of sending the gospel into the world from Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, ends with Paul five years after being told by Jesus that he was going to Rome. It ends with him just sitting in chains. Incredibly anticlimactic, right? Like for me, I want some kind of resolution. At least kill him or do something. Like bring something to a close. But Paul just sits there and he just talks about Jesus. And I find this, I don't know how I find this. I don't really find it comforting. I find, kind of find it somewhat disturbing. And it bothers that part of me that wants everything to come to a answerable conclusion. Right? I want that in my life. I want things to have resolution. If I get in a, a fight with my wife or we are arguing, I need to bring it to a resolution and I need to do it now. Never works well, right? But I need to because my heart is geared towards happy endings or geared towards at least answers. The book of Acts just sort of unfolds like a lawn chair and just sits there. So I started thinking about what it is that I really am wrestling with, not just with this ending, but I think it's actually the call itself that Jesus gives Paul. And I want to explore it this morning for what it's not. Not for what it is. We've talked a lot about what it is, but really for what it's not. And so before we do that, I want to remind you about this call. The Holy Spirit had told Paul to go back to Jerusalem. He had wrapped up a third missionary journey, taken 11 or something years for all these journeys, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. He has seen incredible things. He has seen incredible difficulty, incredible hardship, and the Holy Spirit tells him to go back to Jerusalem, and every single one of his friends says, don't do it. And these are people that love the Lord. Don't do it. It's going to be terrible. And if you remember, right before Paul goes, he looks at his friends and he says, am I not willing to face death to follow Jesus? And they said, well, if you're going, then we're going with you. And they followed him, right, from Caesarea all the way to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, you remember the story, right? He's met with hostility. He tries to go through the purification rituals. The Jewish people don't have it. They try and attack him in an angry mob and drag him into the courts of the temple and begin to beat him to death. And Lysias, the Roman commander, is in charge of all of the Roman soldiers, which is about 700 of them in Rome, I mean in Jerusalem at the time. He's in charge of all of them. And they have the army barracks, which is right outside the temple gates. They look out the windows and see them beating this guy. And Lysias says, well, that can't happen. And so he goes down and arrests Paul, saving him essentially from the clutches of the Jewish people that want him dead, drags him in the army barracks, and was going to have him tortured to find out why he was causing such a ruckus when Paul says, you can't really torture me because I'm kind of a Roman citizen. And Lysias freaks out because he knows that he can't, without a trial, 
torture a Roman citizen or even put him in jail. So he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, what, what is wrong with this guy? Why are y'all fighting? And Paul, in the way he can only do, sparks a debate and they just flip out. And they literally, Lysias thinks they're going to rip him limb from limb. So he arrests him again, takes him in the army barracks. And that night, alone, nearly killed by his own people, right before he's going to learn about a murder plot on his own life, it says that Jesus himself came and stood next to him. The presence of Christ in the middle of the night in a Roman army barrack in a city where Paul once thrived and lived, that people have now turned on him, where he is now alone. Jesus stands next to him and he says, take courage, right? As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must testify about me in Rome. And that's the entire call. There is no other sort of bottom line to it. There's no, this is how it's going to work and when it's going to be. It's just take courage. You're going to testify about me in Rome, which was roughly 2,000 miles away. And that's all that Paul knows. Now, we remember the rest of that story, right? The rest of the story is it takes five or three years to get there where Paul will spend another two years in jail. The things I just went through, the beatings and the imprisonments and the false accusations, the shipwrecks and the storms and the snake bites, and all those things would follow that single call that would lead to Rome, that would lead to Paul still sitting in jail. And I think what I wrestle with with this call and what it's not is how it affects my heart to know that Jesus has called Paul and at the end of this book, there is no problem that is fixed. Five years later, Paul is chained to a Roman guard, having hung on every word that Jesus told him. Testify about me in Rome. In prison, still waiting, all that he has walked through. So I started thinking about this call Friday, I was really kind of running through all this in my head, and I started thinking about the things that it was not and why it was bothering me so much. And it may not bother you, but I've spent a lot of time wrestling with this book, right? And it just began to bother me, not in a way that says, like, God isn't good, but just in a way that is unsettling of sorts. And, And I think it boils down to these things for me about what this call is not. First, this call is not the promise of a happy fairy tale ending. I know that's obvious, but a lot of us think that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that when we say yes to God, he will make all of our wildest dreams come true, right? We think that this fairy tale life or ending is going to happen, and my family's going to miraculously get fixed, my work will miraculously get happy, and all the sort of doubt and circumstances in my life will be patched together, and we will look like the picture on the cover of the church website right? Where we're sitting in the grass holding hands and our son's laughing and we're having a picnic. (laughs) Just go to any church website. Everybody's got one of those pictures. We think that will be us and we fight and long for that because we think that the end of the call is this fairy tale. But that fairy tale is always defined by our endings. It's never actually defined by what God is doing. It's defined by how we see comfort, how we see things, how we want things to end, and the sort of assumptions that we put on God to bring about joy and happiness in our lives on our terms. But this call had none of that. God never looked at Paul that night and said, hey, listen, it's going to be difficult, but at the end, it's going to be worth it, man, I promise. 
There is light at the end of that tunnel. Never. In fact, all Jesus says is take courage. In other words, it's going to probably be brutal. So be courageous. There are going to be times when you want to quit. There are going to be times when you think you're going to die. Be courageous. Because you're going to have to testify about me in Rome. And there's no definition of what testifying looks like, is there? Paul's got no idea. We want it to end differently for us. You know how it ends for Paul? We have to piece it together with some extra biblical sources and some stuff that comes out of books that were written right at the end of his life, like 2 Timothy. But here's really how it kind of ends with Paul. He stays in jail for two years, from AD 61 to AD 63, where he is somehow released. No one knows how. No historical books record it. But he is released, and he takes a trip. A lot of different scholars believe that he went to different places, but he takes a trip for about a year. And in AD 64, he returns to Jerusalem where he is immediately arrested. And he sits in prison for two and a half years. And in the middle of AD 67, he is taken out on a road outside of town and beheaded by Emperor Nero. Right at the time that Rome is being consumed by fires that are recorded in all of history about these incredible fires that are burning through Rome that Nero blames on the Christians... And that begins the outbreak of persecution that most of us heard about in our history classes. Where Nero, this horrific, maniacal maniac, would take the bodies of Christians and he would put them on stakes and light them on fire around his house when he had parties. He would throw them in gladiatorial rings and have them torn apart by lions. Murdering thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. That man would take Paul and have him beheaded on the road so that everybody that came in got to see. That's how it ends for Paul. That's not how my fairy tale ends, right? I don't know about yours, but mine ends with all of sort of my comforts happening. We have been sold this gospel, this sort of prosperity gospel that says, if we have faith in Christ, he will make your dreams come true. He will give you the comforts, he will give you the things, and he will give you blessings in your life. And we define those blessings based on what we want. Financially, relationally, whatever they are, we define those things. And it is a lie that leads to disappointment and disillusionment. The prosperity gospel is a lie. There is no promise when we follow Christ of a fairy tale ending. But as followers of Christ, the chief call of our life is to die to ourselves and say, Jesus, your will be done. Now, it doesn't sound all that great, but at the end, what I can promise you is that what we are guaranteed when we follow Jesus is that we are guaranteed, right, to understand the nature and depth of God's character. And we are guaranteed a peace and a joy that is unexplainable. But we are not guaranteed four-bedroom house, two cars, and a family picture on the church website. Sometimes shipwrecks and snake bites and stuff lead us five years down the road, still sitting chained to whatever it was we were wrestling with and living a life that we didn't think we wanted. I'm going I'm to wrap that up a little differently at the end, but I want you to let it sit there for a minute because I think that is part of what bothers me is because I need resolution. I need it to work out. The second thing I want you to see is this. There is no promise in this call that Paul will ever see the fruit of his labor. 
That goes for all of us. There's no promise that when we say yes to following Jesus, we will ever see the result or the fruit. And that bothers us because we have created a culture where we can deal with struggle and we can deal with heartache and we can deal with hurt as long as at the end of the day, we think that time, investment, hurt, pain, struggle is worth it. In business, we call it an ROI, a return on our investment. As long as what we put out there yields a greater return than it was worth whatever we gave an effort for. That transfers over to our Christian life. Think about this example for a minute. I can live with, if Paul goes to Rome and he's handcuffed and he's shipwrecked and he's bit by snakes and all these things happen and he ends up in jail for two years, two more years go by, it's five years later, he stands before Nero and Paul shares the gospel with Nero and Nero's heart breaks and he falls on his knees and surrenders his heart to Jesus and thousands and thousands of Christian lives are saved and spared. I can live with that. I can deal with five years of heartache and struggle to get to that fruit and return. But we are never promised to see this side of heaven, right, the return of our faithfulness to God. We are never promised that we will see something like that. God is always and consistently and constantly at work, and he never promises that we will see how those ends meet. We were never promised that we will know how our faithfulness will affect someone else. There's never a promise of that because that's not why we follow Jesus. We are not following Jesus for an ROI. We are not following Christ so that somehow we can see something at the end. We are following Jesus because the chief call of a Christ follower is to say, your will be done. Even if I don't see it or don't know it, or even if it comes hundreds of years later. How many lives were changed by Acts 9 as Paul told his story on the road to Damascus? How many hundreds of thousands of people over the course of 2,000 years have had their lives changed by the book of Acts? Paul never was told by Jesus, hey, go through this. Your story is going to actually end up impacting lives. He just says, go to Rome. But every now and again, God allows us in his sort of complex beauty to see a glimpse into what he's doing. Just a glimpse. Sometimes we see the whole picture, and sometimes we don't see any of it. And, but sometimes we see a little bit of a snapshot of what's unfolding. And I think that Paul, over the course of his time, was able to see those things. But there's one in particular I want you to see because it happens in, um, right in this sort of period. Remember last week I told you that Paul wrote the book to Philippians, the, the, the book of Philippians. He writes it while he's under arrest, chained to a guard in Rome. He's under house arrest, and he writes the letter to the Philippians. And they are struggling. I mean, they are facing civil unrest. They're facing deep persecution. And they're actually facing starvation. It is a rough time to be a believer in Philippi. And Paul is writing them deep encouragements from their heart. We talked a little bit about this last week. But he drops something in there at the very close of that book. And I want you to see if you catch it. Now remember, Paul's writing this chained to Roman guards. Final greetings, Philippians chapter 4. He says this. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are here with me, remember he's in Rome, the brothers who are here with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace in the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Amen. Did you catch it? 
all the brothers that are here with me send their greetings. Luke and Aristarchus and all the, the people that have given their life to, the, uh, to Jesus in Rome send their greetings. But especially Philippians, church that is struggling, people that are wrestling with real heartache and things, I want you to hear something. Especially those believers, right, that are in Caesar's household. Do you see what's happened in the past two years? Somewhere in that window, every single day, as Paul sat chained up in that house and he shared the gospel chained to a Roman centurion, and as people came by and heard the gospel, somewhere along the way, that gospel had infiltrated the household of Nero. Somehow, that gospel had made its way through the ranks of the Roman guards and into Nero's house to where some of his own household had given their life to Jesus, and those people are sending their greetings to the Philippians. That Paul's faithful following of Jesus has not only led to the sharing of the gospel with everyone who comes by, but somewhere, some people in Nero's own house, the household that was opposed to Christianity to its death, had come to know Jesus. Centuries later, St. Jerome would write, that Nero's own wife became a believer. Now, we don't have any historical evidence to back that up, but he would write that she became a believer. Every once in a while, God allows us to catch a glimpse of how our faithfulness to his call is impacting the lives of people. Now, it's not a promise, but what I find incredibly encouraging in this story is that this resolution may not end, but God is using every word to change lives that would ultimately end up changing mine. Paul's faithfulness in Rome and the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles, which are most of us here, right? Non-Jewish gospel, Gentiles. We are engrafted into God's covenant promise to the person of Jesus Christ because of Paul's faithfulness to say, God, your will be done. He never knew it. He never asked for it. But we are never promised a fairy tale happy ending. We are never promised to see the fruits, right? The last thing I want you to see is that we are really never promised that this call on our life is really about us. We have a very me-driven Christianity. Almost every single one of us is driven by a me-centered Christianity. God, what do you have for me? God, what is your will for my life? God, where are you leading me? God, where am I going? Where are you taking me? What is in this for me? Who am I marrying? It's all usually about me, 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 me. And if we look at this from the outside, we think this journey is actually about Paul. God is taking Paul through all these steps from Jerusalem all the way up and all the way across to get him to Rome. But the truth is this journey is not about Paul at all. This journey is actually about Jesus. It's about the Lord. God is using Paul as his instrument, but the journey is not really about Paul. It's about the fact that God is at work for his glory and his purpose. And along the way, in God's incredibly amazing way, he moves and works in Paul's life and heart. But make no mistake, this is not a call about Paul. It's a call about the Lord. An amazing thing happens when we begin to shift our me-centered Christianity to a God-centered Christianity that says, God, I don't really care what you have for me, but what are you doing and how can I join you? God, where are you at work and how can I see that? God, I want to know you and not the resolution of my circumstance. Paul never once in this journey that we ever see recorded in Scripture did he ask God, 
why he was doing this to him. God, why are you doing this to me? Never once in those five years of shipwrecks and trials and false accusations and beatings and snake bites and storms did Paul ever look up to God and say, why are you doing this to me? Which is exactly what I would be yelling at God. Because my me-centered Christianity drives my life. But something remarkable happens when we shift out of that and say, God, your will be done regardless of me, regardless of what that means I have to give up or walk away from, like, I want what you want. And so Paul, somehow in the midst of all this, was faithful enough to be chained up. For five years, he's under arrest and a prisoner to share the gospel enough with everyone that came by so that message penetrated even into Nero's house. And can you imagine being part of that Philippian church that is facing oppression and persecution and struggle and hearing that the gospel had made it into the emperor's home, that in his house, eating at his table, maybe even his own family, they were believers in there. The hope that that gives to be able to say, God is so incredible, because that household was unpenetratable. That household was dead set on murdering believers. But the God of the universe has penetrated it, and what that would have spoken to the hearts of the Philippians. This call that we saw five years ago, as we hit Acts 30, right, 31, not a promise of a fairy tale, not a promise to see fruit, and it's sure not a call about Paul. That is you and I. This call on your life to follow Jesus, it's not a promise that things are going to end in a comfortable way for you. It's not a promise that all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. It's not a promise that God will work everything out according to what your definitions are. And it's not a promise that this side of heaven you will actually see those things. Although I believe that God will show you glimpses along the way, there's never a promise that God will show you why you are walking through what you are walking through. And there's never a promise that this thing is actually about you because it's always about God and it is always about his glory and the struggles and the things that you are walking through or called into are always for God's glory and when you and I recognize those things and get off our me-centered circled life and say God I want what you want radical things begin to happen it takes a few things to get there I'm going to do these really quick a few things to get there and they are hallmarks of the book of Acts and hallmarks of a life that follows Christ and the first one is surrender you cannot get to that place until you surrender your will to the will of God. God, not what I want, but you, what you want. Somewhere along the way, probably on that road to Damascus, Paul came to a place where he said, I no longer am going to pursue me. My definitions, my success, my desires, my things. Just, God, you get me. All of my brokenness, all of my sin, all of my failure, all of my things, I'm surrendering them to you. Most of us are stuck here. We are in a constant control battle with the Lord trying to wrestle things out of his hands that we are afraid to let go of, right? Surrender. Second one is trust. If I'm going to surrender to that God, I have to trust that he really is in control and that he is always at work. And the question I always have to ask myself is, do I really believe that about God? That if I'm going to surrender to a God, I have to trust him. And the final one that I want you to see, and we'll wrap it up with this, is that in those moments... There is an inexpressible joy. Most of our Christian lives, sadly, are not marked by joy. 
we wrestle with God and we surrender and we do it in a way that just says, whatever, you can have it. Like I'm done fighting you for it. There's no joy in that surrender. It's frustration and a letting go. Somewhere along the way in that journey, Paul found a place where he could sit in a rented house for two years and still find a purpose for his life enough to passionately share the gospel. He has passion when he shares with the Jewish leaders that you think would be long gone. But Paul's life is marked by this different joy, not a happiness that says everything is perfect, but a joy that says I have purpose in drawing breath. Following the call of Christ, whether it's the call across the world or whether it's the call across the room or whether it's just the call to come and die, is about surrender and trust and finding joy that God is in control. He is always at work and he is bigger than anything you could ever dream or imagine. And it is a privilege to give your life to him. Surrender and trust and joy. The three things that are hallmarks of this book and probably the three things that I struggle with the most. Totally giving Lord, totally trusting him and finding joy in those moments where joy is not easy to find. Paul's life, the book of Acts, is hallmarked by people that have surrendered and trusted and found joy. Even Philip, in the moment of his death, stoned to death, able to look up to heaven and say, I see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God as the Jewish people heaved rocks on him. Surrender and trust and joy. What are the hallmarks of your life? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for, I thank you for this book. It's just part of Scripture is what's so amazing. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's part of the story. It's part of this remarkable story. There's something beautiful about completion, something beautiful about beginning and ending and 35 years of history that we have walked through that are actually marked by the same things that it began with. Acts 1 is marked with surrender and trust and joy, and Acts 28 is marked with those same things. And they are not only the call of the church in Acts 1 and the call of Paul in Acts 28, they are actually the call of my life, of our lives. God, I confess that I want a fairy tale sometimes. I want to see a return on my heart's investment. And God, I want this thing to be about me. And I'm sad to say that. I'm sad to say that. So help turn my heart around to want to see your glory alone. To surrender my heart and trust you and find joy in the places where sometimes joy is hard to find. And to realize that if following Christ, a life that follows Christ is about believing and trusting in your faithfulness. God, I am humbled by this two years. The more so I'm humbled by the fact that you love us enough to rescue us. Even in our sinful, deepest, most broken places, you love us. And the book of Acts is about that relentless love. That relentless love that went to the cross. That relentless love that drove Peter and Paul and the first apostles and disciples and followers of Christ to the very ends of the earth to tell people the truth that had changed their life. Oh God, if we were only as motivated, if we only believed that for ourselves, where would it drive us to? Would it drive us to call our 
our relative that we love that we've never talked about Jesus with? Would it drive us to, to sit next to that coworker and tell him what our, our heart is about? Would it drive us to follow your call to the very ends of the earth? Oh, that God, we would stop the maintenance of ourselves and push ourselves into culture and quit being afraid of what we think people are going to say. Instead, be so in love with the God that redeems lives that we want the world to know. So God, to the ends of the earth and back again, we will follow you. Hear our cries, we close in worship, God. You are triumphant. You are victorious. And the great thing about the book of Acts is that even though it doesn't end with a great resolution, the church just goes on. And here we are. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand and sing this uh, together. Um, this is a bit of a mashup that we've done many times, and it's uh, one of the songs is, is really specific, um, just gospel truth. And the other song is very much an exhortation on, on what the gospel does when it gets in people's hearts and also an exhortation for us to share it.